electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Market insight and analysis. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC Squawk on the Street. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm David Faber with Leslie Picker and Mike Santoli. We are live from the New York Stock Exchange. Jim and Carl both have this nice summer Friday off. Let's give you a look at uh, futures, of course, as we get started on the last day of trading of the week. You can see we are set up yet again, as has often been the case this week, for a higher open. But we shall see. Let's get to our roadmap this morning. It does start with sustaining sales. Reports indicating Apple asking suppliers to build as many of its iPhones this year as last, despite slumping projections for the overall smartphone market. Plus, five U.S.-listed Chinese companies are seeking to delist from the New York Stock Exchange. We've got the details. And Ape is coming. Adam Aaron tweeting the date that his new AMC preferred equity begins trading. We've got the latest. (laughs) That's a pretty funny tweet, too. (laughs) It's an avatar. All right, let's start with the markets, though. What has been uh, up to now a very positive August Four stocks. Uh, great to have Leslie and Mr. Santoli here to sort of help out in that conversation. And Mike, I guess I'll turn to you since you do it all day long. You know, as we head into the end of this week, what's sort of foremost in mind for you? Uh, the market gaining a little bit of comfort that the things we were most afraid of a few months ago, or even a month and a half ago, uh, look a little bit less likely. So we were in a stagflation panic. The jobs number, the inflation numbers that have come in in the last couple of weeks have made people feel a little bit better about the stag and inflation. I think that's about (laughs) as simple as it gets. And people were not positioned for a pretty rapid rally because the way you get rapid rallies is people aren't positioned for them. So that's basically uh, the sum total. The interesting thing is up more than 15 percent. We've just about yesterday peaked above that level that would have been regaining half of all the losses from the uh, January to June decline, uh, kind of backed off from that level. So the question is short term, maybe the market's a little bit stretched. Maybe we've already kind of gotten the peak inflation story priced into to a fair degree. But it doesn't seem as if there's something that's going to knock it necessarily off course very soon, because you have to have a challenge to that idea that we are on the downslope of inflation at the Fed. Look, a six month window, if the market looks ahead six months, Basically, the market is saying the Fed's done in six months. It may not be true, but right now it's going to take something to knock that uh, storyline off course. And um, the cyclical stocks are moving. So the market is getting more comfortable that a soft landing that seemed a remote possibility might be a slightly less remote possibility. Is that what you think is mostly priced into the market right now, this idea that, um, you know, a soft landing appears more possible than it did before? Not necessarily that Fed pivot that everybody's talking about, but just this idea that a soft landing, given what we saw with inflation data, given that the employment backdrop is still quite strong, despite somewhat softer numbers yesterday, seems more in the realm of possibility. Yes. I, well, I think there's been a little bit of reassurance on both those fronts. Now, we should probably define Fed pivot. I think if you look at the implied pricing of where the Fed funds rate goes into next year, you would say, well, the pivot means they're going to tighten a bit more above 3%, uh, maybe 35 and then quickly going to start cutting mm-hmm. rates. 
that is one kind of pivot that no Fed official will ever say that's going to be the case because you're never going to say we're just going to build up a lot of rate hikes to get take them away. A Fed pivot could also be just slowing down, right? Going 50 basis points in September, then figure you're back on a course of quarter point increases from there, maybe a couple more, and then wait and see. Jay Powell said we're already near neutral. So if that's the case, then the other side of it, the potential soft landing, says the economy maybe is stronger than we thought, therefore is sturdy enough to withstand whatever the Fed has left to do. So it's not so much, it's not two fully independent stories. Uh, it, it, it's all those together. And earnings held together. And corporate America seems not to be under a tremendous amount of stress, despite the, uh, you know, the inflationaries. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, it is worth reminding people. We got a CPI, Consumer Price Index, that was not up month to month. And that was something of a surprise. The market rallied sharply. Although yesterday, Mike, uh, after a PPI that was down a half a percent month on month, we didn't sustain the gains that we showed early on. Exactly. And that partly is about, you know, very short term, getting a little bit stretched and you've gotten a lot of buying in a short amount of time. The other piece of it is during the day yesterday, as we got above that level and had a very excitable open uh, above that level where it was like more than half the gains are in the books uh, from from the total losses, yields ticked higher, oil prices bounced. Mm. Not big. They're nowhere near their highs. But it was just one of those things of you got to keep it in your peripheral vision because this stock market, if you look at the course of the year, has not performed well when 10 years Treasury yields were above 3 percent. It happened in two distinct phases this year, and the market didn't like it. So it doesn't mean it's some kind of magic trigger for selling stocks, but it shows you that there's a, a kind of sensitivity to what that's going to mean, especially for the big growth stocks in the, uh, in the NASDAQ, which drive the indexes. Uh, so that, that, to me, was what was going on yesterday. Yeah, it was interesting. I was watching Disney, of course, yesterday as well, which was such a strong performer, but started to come down along with the broader market as yeah. the day went along, ending up just less than 5%. But because, you know, you could look at certain parts of the report and say, well, maybe not quite as strong as had been, certainly better than had been anticipated, but adding a lot of subs in India are those high-quality subs, no domestic real uh, sub growth, relying a lot on a price increase, they say will absolutely stick, and they're not concerned about... And again, uh, you know, we'll see if that stock maintains that, that gain today. But even yesterday, um, Sonos, even Warby Parker, which was up sharply, yeah. Sonos said, we've seen the macroeconomic backdrop become significantly more challenging. Warby Parker, and again, better than had been anticipated, and so the stock was up sharply, but said we're taking a more conservative view into the rest of 2022. A few days back, you had Yeti, again, consumer discretionary. I know they sell a lot of those high-end coolers, maybe... Maybe there's just a, not that big a market for a $500 cooler, but they say we saw a softening in the quarter in the Amazon marketplace. Yeah. Commentary hasn't been bad, but some of it hasn't been that good. I agree. It's not been that good. Those are some interesting examples, though, because they were companies that were kind of niche, huge addressable market. They don't have that much of it yet. Um, relatively untested companies, fresh IPOs. They ran up. All of them got excitable. Uh, at the highs when they when they came public and then uh, they, they've kind of settled back uh, at deep losses. So that's been the pattern. Uh, there's been a rebuild in a lot of those really blasted out stocks, the 80 percent down category of stocks. The Goldman Sachs most heavily shorted stocks basket, I believe, is up 30 percent in a month into yesterday's highs. And then it really backed up. I mean, there's only so much. Uh, you know, kind of buying power that you that well, you had a lot of you've had a lot of hedge funds as well that have not that have yeah. taken their nets way down that are actually short gross and and uh, they're getting hurt again. Yes, right. they're getting hurt again. And they've been caught in names like Upstart and Coinbase. Uh, which they have been short, and when we saw the squeeze in, in, in names like that. Yeah, there was actually an interesting piece in the journal um, looking at just the, the 
recovery over the last eight weeks in certain names. They mentioned Rivian, Peloton, GameStop, more than doubling from its 52-week low. And they, they quote Gary Schilling, um, you know, basically saying that the this, this stocks never really quite reached their, what he calls a puke point, <laughs> a capitulation, and they rallied before they were able to reach that. And so that has some people questioning just the sustainability of this rally. I wonder if you give any credence to that. It's in the eye of the beholder to some degree. I mean, if you're short something that you think is a company that kind of doesn't deserve to be public or doesn't deserve to have its its valuation, you probably never think it's low enough. Um, Mm -hmm. I I do think it's fair to say that that broadly speaking, we got pretty washed out in June. I'm not saying that that the the lower quality kind of hyper growth stocks necessarily had the full reckoning. I remember back in 01 and 02, uh, you know, David, it was the, the, the mode was how many stocks are trading below their net cash right. value? Mm-hmm. A right. lot. It was like hundreds. Uh, I'm not sure we're there yet, but there are a bunch. And uh, I, I feel like it's the market kind of uh, make sure you're not very comfortable riding a trend for very long. So maybe not yeah. puke, just some indigestion. Yeah, exactly. All right. We got to get more on the markets as well. Uh, and for that, we're joined by Oppenheimer Asset Management Chief uh, Strategist, Investment Strategist on Solfus and uh, Schwab Asset Management CEO and CIO Omar Ag. Gentlemen, good morning to both of you. John, let me start with you. Uh, and just, you know, given we are largely through earnings season, just give me your your take on what you've seen, um, uh, both on the numbers and the commentary and what it means for the market. Yeah, uh, David, I, I would have to say that uh, earnings, of course, came in better than expected. Uh, overall, you know, uh, you can nitpick it and say, well, if you take out oil, it's a negative read on earnings growth. Uh, but really, the negative read on early earnings growth comes from financials, uh, from the communication services sector, uh, as well as it uh, as it, uh, it as it, uh, it as it comes from uh, 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 one more of them. It's just it's our consumer discretionary, which is is down uh, uh, modestly. Even tech came in with a plus, although it's positive. Uh, and basically flat for the positive bias, but you've got good results, and, and, and essentially 74% of companies surprised to the upside, is that, uh, at least as of yesterday. Um, so what does it mean for as you look at 2023, and perhaps importantly for so many strategists, you know, what are S&P earnings going to be, and therefore are we adequately priced in the market at this point? Yeah, I've got got to say that I think that we are adequately priced at this point. Uh, It doesn't mean that we can't feel some volatility if we get uh, uh, some kind of a catalyst coming across the the news tape, you know, that justifies some selling uh, without FOMO by bears and skeptics and nervous investors. But overall, would have to say this would suggest to us that there is resilience even within a, a tough reopening of the economy, all the problems that stem from Putin's incursion into Russia and from China's zero COVID tolerance that, uh, that cause all kinds of supply chain uh, disruption extensions, so to speak. shows that business can really handle it and can handle it and the consumer can, and that should be good for earnings. And revenue growth across all the sectors was positive so far. Omar, uh, it's Leslie Picker here. I'm curious if you agree with that um, and whether you believe that the the last four weeks of gains that we've seen in stocks is more of a fundamental rally than perhaps, you know, the macro themes that we've been talking about with regard to potential for, you know, less aggressive um, Fed policy, potential for slowing inflation, things of that nature. 
Yes, uh, thank you and good morning. Um, uh, a couple of things. One is uh, starting with the macro question, uh, uh, talking about you know the themes out there. Uh, this market seems to be fueled significantly by the expectations that the Fed will change its course, uh, that there will be a, a pivot, and that in some points is going to be less aggressive. Um, that seems to be a little premature uh, in many cases. You know, clearly there is a lot of bargain hunting. There is a lot of uh, short covering that is happening in the market. The uh, volumes that we have seen, especially even this week, you know, are much, much lighter. Very common in August. But overall, when you see the, 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 the shape of the market rally, seems to be a lot of driven by lack of fear as opposed to a fundamental conviction that this is a rally that will stick. Uh, when it thinks about earnings, and uh, and I agree the fact that we saw a, a robust earnings season and we saw a, a significant amount of resilience on corporate America, we also have to take into consideration that a lot of these earnings numbers you know, were as a result of pricing power that was transmitted to consumers, and that in a way the inflation picture that we saw uh, over the last you know, 12 months was translated into earnings growth that was bloated by those inflation numbers. So that pricing power seems to be reflected in the earnings of this quarter. Uh, John, it, you know, the earnings certainly did come through, as you mentioned. We've seen more or less routine declines in the uh, third and fourth quarter numbers, so nothing too dramatic yet. But I guess the question is what we're paying uh, for the earnings outlook right now. Many have pointed out as we've gotten this rally, the S&P is back up toward 18 times forward earnings. Uh, a lot of that is still the very large growth stocks inflating it. But uh, do you think we're getting ourselves in a position where, you know, we, we rally into a point where the forward returns are not going to be that attractive? Well, I think we're not there yet. Let me put it that way. And we'll have to see the way earnings really come come out when we get into that third quarter reporting season. You know, based on what the jobs numbers showed us last week with the CPI and the PPI in particular showed this week, this may this may overall work pretty good for earnings when we look at the Q3 earnings and fourth quarter. So. I'd say the fact that analysts cut their expectations going into uh, the end of the year actually uh, offers opportunity uh, to recognize what we believe is that uh, fundamentals are indeed getting better, even as many challenges remain on the landscape. Opportunity as well as potentially some volatility. And Omar, I know you're urging clients to rebalance amid that volatility. Uh, rebalance in what way? What types of uh, weightings would you advise? Well, uh, the, it's very clear that we're entering the last phase and we're already sort of at the beginning of the last phase of the economic cycle. Under that period, we should expect more volatility. We should expect, you know, deceleration of economic growth. We should expect deceleration of earnings, you know, in the process of an interest rate hikes. And uh, as we see tightening of financial conditions, you know, this is a good opportunity for clients to use a rebalancing mechanism to be disciplined about maintaining diversification and trying to just have uh, uh, strategies where you, you still need to have some defensive, you know, components going into this part of the market, but start preparing for the next, you know, part where the market is ahead. So having a good connection of, you know, cyclicals, you know, growth oriented, high quality, which is probably Probably what we emphasize, as well as still maintaining some defensive, you know, positions, will probably be a good strategy, you know, coming on to the next part of the second half of the year. Gentlemen, uh, thanks to you both. Uh, good weekend to you both. 
When we return, Apple said to be expressing confidence about iPhone sales in a downturn. And in the next hour, an exclusive with Richmond Fed President Tom Barkin. Hear his take on inflation and the rate hike picture. Let's take a look at futures as we head to the break. Green across the screen, implied open of 171, 172 points higher on the Dow. More Squawk on the Street ahead. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. It appears Apple expects to sustain iPhone sales amid the global electronics downturn. According to Bloomberg, the company is asking suppliers to make as many of its next-generation iPhones this year as it did in 2021, calling for 90 million new devices. Apple reportedly expects to assemble 220 million iPhones in total for 2022, similar to last year, counting on demand from affluent customers. Um, so a kind of steady-as-she-goes message from uh, the, the expected demand side pretty much mirrors the way the stock has behaved, I would argue. Um, you know, it's really, it's within 8% of its all-time high. Overall market's much weaker than that. The NASDAQ is still weaker. It just seems as if this idea that they've got this smoothed out upgrade cycle, there's kind of enough installed devices for them to, you know, pump the services through them. Um, it's kind of a don't overthink it type investment thesis, I think. And, you know, Warren Buffett owns more than 5%. He's not selling any or doesn't seem to be selling much. Uh, so it's, it's, it's kind of fascinating how investors have gotten that message to a degree. It's also back above 7% of the S&P in terms of the weighting. Wow. So it's really, you know, kind of back to that point of, of, of carrying more weight than it ever did before and pretty much, pretty historic, actually. Not that many stocks in history have been too much higher than 7%. It also sets Apple apart, you know, when there's been just this overall concern about slowing smartphone sales globally. You know, here they're saying, actually, we expect a pretty flat uh, flat growth year over year compared to 2021. And of course, the iPhone represents, you know, it's still their flagship product. It represents half of their revenue. Right. So it's a very, very important and piece of Apple's Apple's pie. That's a And it's the, bad, the, it's the exposure to China, supply chain, all that stuff that seems not to matter for Apple the way it has for just about everyone else. Yeah, you got Huawei also, um, you know, revealing their financials. It's a still closely held company. Uh, but they said that revenue fell 5.9% in the first half of the year uh, compared to a year earlier. But that's largely due to Western restrictions hampering their ability to get the chips that they need in some of their core products. So yeah. kind of goes back to the supply chain dynamic between, you know, our region and Asia as well. Yeah. And then you see the, uh, you know, the stock over the last three years or so. I mean, it looks like not bad for Berkshire, pretty by the steady way. uptrend. It's yeah. been incredible for them. I yeah. mean, it's I mean, they're the largest holder holding. by far. Berkshire. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And Apple's um, the largest position for Berkshire as well, right? Yes. That, yeah. 
high, most valuable position for uh, for Berkshire. And you know the logic of if we don't sell, we we own more of the company every day because Apple buys back the re the stock from everyone else has been you know working in favor uh, of, of Buffett for a while. Very yeah, Apple a far better performer than the S and P to Mike's point uh, as we start trading today down only 5.1 percent for the year. All right, coming up, Amazon. Also bouncing back, not like Apple, but you can see it there, up more than 30% over the last three months. We will look at whether there is still time to get in on the rebound. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. Volatile uh, morning for shares of Rivian. This is after the electric vehicle maker widened its loss estimate for 2022. It did, however, affirm prior production guidance, uh, 25,000 vehicles for the year. Uh, we also should point out that uh, the Inflation Reduction Act is very close to being signed into law, but Rivian not necessarily a beneficiary because its vehicles are priced largely above $80,000, and the $7,500 tax credit is only going to apply to vehicles below that price point. Right. Um, not clear how that's going to impact it. Another name, for example, Lucid, I noticed earlier in the week was up a bit on it, yeah. and then people started to realize, wait a second, most of their vehicles are well above 80000 bucks. Yeah, the tax credits don't help in terms of the demand side of the equation. And then on the other side, we saw in their earnings for Rivian that uh, inflation impacted their bottom line as well because it impacted the freight costs that it took to, you know, ship their products. They're pursuing rail instead, um, which leads to longer delivery times, which has already been an issue for this company, as well as component parts, which we've seen across the EV spectrum as well, much, much more expensive in this current inflationary environment. So they're kind of not getting that Re Inflation Reduction Act benefit and then feeling the pain from, from inflation, inflation itself, right? You know. Some noise about the, you know, how uh, good the performance was in terms of new orders booked in the in the quarter. It was incrementally, you know, improvement, uh, but not necessarily blockbuster. What's interesting to me is is how this, the the stock is valued relative to its production levels right now. If you got, dial back to when Tesla had a thirty billion dollar first got to a thirty billion dollar valuation on twenty sixteen or something, um, they were producing I don't know three or four times as many vehicles. But obviously, you've now seen it done. You've seen Tesla has proven that the model can work. Obviously, the capitalization of Rivian is, is strong. There's no real questions about that with the backing they have. Uh, Amazon, if remember, Tesla was always hand to mouth uh, with capital. So it's not that it's uh, out of whack necessarily, but it shows you that Rivian's been given a fair amount of credit for how big that brand can become and, and how many vehicles they're on course to sell. Yeah, and also reflective overall of the speculative nature of the market some time back, not that long yeah. ago. Of course, if, if people don't remember, this company came public immediately, soared to more than a hundred billion dollar market value, had a uh, obviously a value far in excess of that of Ford or GM, yeah. second only to Tesla for some period of time, and then came crashing down. But well, what's interesting close, is if though. you if you look at since it came public, the chart it is that crazy moonshot. Real sharp crash, and now just incremental improvement. It really does look like it's sort of uh, creating some kind of a base, uh, in, you know, in the stock as the story has stabilized. They do have $15 billion dollars in cash, yeah. which helps provide that floor. They're not spending $15 billion in cash. Apparently, 
year. Everybody loves to look at a dog. All right, CNBC's real-time exchange. A lot more green going to be there. Here at the big board, by the way, Active Plus. You hear them chanting that. Active Plus NYC runs health and sports programs across the city. Over at the NASDAQ, the nonprofit organization, Guiding Eyes for the Blind. Yes. Just because we've mentioned it a few times over the last couple of days, and there's so many eyes on the S&P 500, that halfway point, uh, once it gets back, uh, you know, exactly half of what was lost, it's 42.31, thereabouts. Uh, the people who studied the, the patterns in the past would say it has to close above that level to not so much sound at all clear, but to rank this rally as something that seems like it's greater than previous bear market rallies. Like, you've never really seen a market regain 50% on a closing basis and then go back to new lows. Um, now, if we just go back to the June lows, it's still a pretty tough gut check from here. It's about a 14% drop. So it's not to say that it's smooth sailing and we go up, but it, it's a lot of people are trying to maybe pull some reassurance out of that to the extent that this particular cycle is going to conform to other ones. Because as I keep pointing out, in 2020, the number of times we said, this is the first time the market ever did this. <laughs> it was the fastest the market ever regained a 30% decline. It was the fastest the market doubled off the low uh, after a bear market, you know, a flash bear market. So all of which is to say, you take the information, you say that tells you what the probabilities seem to be, no guarantees. Yeah, historical regressions becoming increasingly difficult in this current environment. It seems like it, yeah. I mean, and in terms of, oh, you know, what the yield curve has said about it, recessions and, and all those things are useful, but you just never know, you know, when the exceptions are going are gonna to pop up. No, right. although I know plenty of veteran money managers who are not convinced of this rally. Yeah. Like, who just simply believe, you know, in the fall we're going to start to see falling earnings, particularly for some of those higher growth areas, whatever, SaaS, and, yeah. you know, take it from there in terms of on the software slash technology side. And they don't want to own it. Yeah. I still think it's fair to say that if that was the low in June, just above 3,600, you would have kind of gotten off relatively easy, just in terms of how much valuations compressed. You didn't really give up that much of the, the previous gains. You kind of went back about, what, 15, 16 months. Uh, you know, a lot of bear markets pretty painful swipe at the away. Time, though. It, without a doubt. But you know what? The three, five, and 10 year returns of the S&P right now, total returns are like 13-ish percent. You know what I mean? It's not like the market owes people that much over a multi-year period. So that's what that all of which is to say, you know, and you, you talk, Leslie, about people not feeling like you got that real uh, complete washout at the at the lows. That's why I think people point to that. Maybe the, one of the most bullish things some people are talking about is if we did sort of dip technically into recession in the early part of this year, and it's kind of a brief one, it's an academic one, that's the most bullish case because the market does often, has often tended to bottom at the moment, people said, actually, it was a recession, <laughs> you know, and then it's not like you're waiting and waiting because otherwise you're kind of stuck in the in the late cycle environment and Fed still tightening into a slow. It just seems like an, an odd mix of, uh, you know, of factors that's hard to just get clear of. And a key driver of the recent rally has been tech. The um, S&P Infotech Index rallied 20 percent from its mid-June low. Now it's trading at 23 times forward. Uh, price to earnings multiple, that's compared to 18 times for the broader index. So what, a five times gap there, which is just surprising given we saw such pain in that area. And yet you, you look at that and then on a fundament, um, fundamental basis, earnings in the sector weren't 
amazing. No, that's right. They were fine. They held up. They weren't amazing. And then you hear layoffs every day at a different tech company that continued to kind of percolate. So I, I see why people are a bit concerned about just the valuation side of things as well as the stability of, you know, where, where we are and where we, we could be going, despite sure. the fact that some data seems to be getting a little better. Without a doubt, yeah. Um, um, you did know, want to hit a couple of movers this morning. Uh, starting with Illumina, uh, which is down over 10%. This is not an insignificant company, $35 plus billion market value before the start of trading this morning. Of course, that is down by uh, 10%, as you see. Um, second quarter results did not meet our expectations. There's challenges in, in a complex macroeconomic environment more than offset the growth we continue to see in sequencing runs on our platform. Remember, that's the key focus of the company, of course, DNA sequencing. Uh, fiscal 2022 now, the company expects consolidated revenue growth in the range of 4 to 5%. And as you see, uh, not being met with a lot of enthusiasm uh, at this point by investors, given that warning and that less than expected number for the second quarter. And 60% uh, off the high. So, I mean, it really did have a, a great ramp. And uh, at a time when, I mean, you don't really call it biotech. It's a little bit of a different flavor of the, the business. But at a time when biotech itself has had finally a pretty good revival and a bunch of M&A in the area. Uh, and, you know, this is, this is a story that's certainly setting, you know, setting itself apart from that trend. Yeah, another uh, stock that's in the red this morning is the New York Times, which is down about 2.5%. That comes off of big gains it saw yesterday with the reveal that Value Act has taken about a 7% stake in the company, pushing for changes. This is an active stake, despite the fact, and this is an interesting new trend, David, that uh, dual-class share structure. Yeah. Activists are not dissuaded by dual-class share structures these days. You've got Elliott in Pinterest. Um, now you've got Value Act in the New York Times. I'm told there are others kind of on the horizon and that just kind of given the dynamics of the market and the leverage basis that people feel like, hey, you know, I can still make change without that threat of a proxy fight on the horizon. Yeah, although that threat of a proxy fight is a fairly effective one oftentimes sure is. Uh, in terms of at least getting yourself over the uh, goal line, so to speak, and what you're after. Uh, but, you know, they do hope just they have leverage in terms of their own opinions and in the marketplace and what they can do. We'll see. What are they asking for, Leslie, at, at Value Act, so, at least from the 13D? It wasn't completely clear beyond what you'd expect. It was kind of the wash of just things. Just do better. They said, exactly. Do better. Uh, we think this is an attractive valuation play. They did say that they would be interested in pursuing a board seat at the company. But, again, goes back to the idea of do the, you just the give Salzburger them a board seat? The family controls... 70% or something roughly, like that? It appears roughly a yeah, 70%. It's, it's tied up in trust, but let's call it a 70% rough vote. So Majority. Yes. Um, you're not going to get anything past them if they don't want it. Exactly. And, you know, they said that they would be interested in discussing changes to management, changes to board composition, changes to business strategy. There was a letter that got sent out to investors from Value Act looking at just the, the potential, um, how lucrative a bundle would be for the times. You know, they have all of these subscription products that they, you know, that they've invested in recently, crosswords, uh, the Wordle, The Athletic, uh, cooking. They have a very nice recipe section oh, that you have to pay for now. Got it. Um, but kind of bundling those together and seeing more value than, a, you know, having people subscribe to each one individually is, I guess, part of their thesis as well. It seems almost like a we have some helpful strategic thoughts and maybe you'll take them as opposed mm -hmm. to some kind of a hostile, this company is being mismanaged type of message. Which reflects what we've seen with Elliott and Pinterest and Pay. 
PayPal as well. This idea yeah. that, hey, we've got some ideas for you guys. Um, we're going to put out a statement that kind of looks kumbaya. We're all getting along right. and they're taking our feedback and we're giving them feedback and, you know, all things are, are bright and dandy. But um, I, I've actually heard, despite the fact that at least for the first half of the year, this changed in July, but the first half of the year, activism was a very, very um, loss-making strategy. It was it was bleeding for their LPs. Um, so some of the smaller activists are actually kind of licking their wounds on the sidelines as they try and replenish the coffers and try and figure out what to do next. But other more established firms, the value acts of the world, the Elliots of the world, are doing kind of things like this where they're seeing good long-term bets, but not necessarily rattling the cages with proxy fights just yet. Yeah. Elliot, I can't remember the last proxy fight Elliot has done. I mean, they've been much more focused on leveraged buyouts and Value Act. Obviously, yeah, Mason Morfitt, obviously, Jeff Ubb, and having exited the firm some time back. Um, I always wonder what Elliot's performance has been like. I'm not quite sure. I mean, AT&T, of course, has not gone well for them at all. Nope. Uh, that was a large position uh, for that firm. But uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting point. And there is a listen, I'm here, and there's still going to be activism. There's no doubt. Uh, we'll, you know, sometimes it does, for example, FedEx is something I've been covering that, but again, you know, you get the, they get three board seats to each shop, no fight, no nothing. They just sort of move ahead and see. And these are really big firms. That too has changed in the last five, 10 years or so. I mean, Elliott has $52 billion in assets under management to deploy. So, you know, it can't all be a proxy fight. It can't all be things no, that, No, it, it you often know, isn't. And they're obviously very happy not to have it not be. It's they can get what they want. But they have also been very much focused, of course, on, their, on the leverage buyout side, where they've been very active. Very active. Nielsen this week, they got a deal done mm -hmm. uh, where they got Windicker, this 27% holder, to agree to roll in to a certain extent. Not clear what else they sort of offered to, to make that deal happen. That stock soared, if you recall. I think it was on Monday or Tuesday. Um, and then the Citrix deal as well, uh, which figures into the financing side because the banks there made a promise on that deal that meant that they're looking at significant losses as they syndicate it. But given rates and where they've fallen to, perhaps the losses won't be quite as bad as people had thought. But that's a very important financing, given the size of that leveraged buyout, uh, sure. one of the largest we've seen in, in quite some time. Again, Elliott, one of the key participants there. I mean, you know, somewhat related to that, I mean, the, the market for corporate credit has actually firmed up pretty nicely in here. So it seems like it got right to the point, if you looked at high yield debt spreads and things like that, uh, widening out to almost that we have to start worrying now About level. Pre-recessionary, exactly. Yeah. And it's really come racing back. It's been this huge rush. Bank of America talking about big inflows into uh, corporate debt funds. So people have basically sit, tried to lock in that yield level. And again, it reflects the idea that if we're not going into recession, we have a high nominal growth economy, Corporate balance sheets are not terrible. I mean, obviously, interest coverage ratios and things look pretty good. Uh, you know, it, you left a little bit of yield on the table and people grabbed it. So we'll see if that stokes any more activity. I don't necessarily think that uh, yeah, people are, are running to finance the riskiest deals, but it shows you that uh, the debt that's out there, there's, there's certainly some eager buyers for it. did want to mention um, uh, something specific to uh, the building we're in. Uh, five Chinese U.S.-listed companies seeking to delist from the NYSE. This has been a story we've been following, obviously, for some time, given uh, pressure from, uh, from the Chinese government. Separate filings uh, to the Hong Kong exchange, China Life Insurance, PetroChina, China Petro, uh, Petroleum Chemical, Aluminum Corp, uh, Sinopec said they would apply for voluntary delisting of their ADSs from 
the New York Stock Exchange. That's having a generally negative effect, as you see, sort of across the board for, for Chinese ADS ADRs. Uh, Alibaba shares are down uh, about 1.3%. They had been under some pressure earlier in the week, perhaps mistakenly when we heard that SoftBank had reduced its stake. But remember, that was in forward contracts. The banks had already accounted for that. So the selling had actually already taken place, potentially, is my understanding. Um, it's not as though there had to be further selling when SoftBank did officially take its stake down from, I think, 23-plus percent to around 14 in Alibaba. But those shares also under pressure again this morning uh, on this news. Our, our Eunice Yoon points out that the companies that have elected to delist from the New York are all kind of state-backed, former yes. state-owned companies, and that China officially has somewhat downplayed the move uh, in their comments afterward, essentially saying delisting, uh, you know, efforts are normal, there's no impact on firms, fundraise. So in other words, it doesn't seem as if it's part of any further maybe orchestrated crusade and, uh, you know, they're, they're trying to say not a big deal here for what that's worth. Now, I don't know if it's normal per se to delist, but um, it definitely speaks to just the fragmentation yeah. of the capital markets in this current environment, which wasn't the case a few weeks ago or a few years ago. Um, also, there was an IPO, uh, a new listing in Hong Kong, China Tourism Group Duty Free Corp, which raised $2 billion. Uh, they had initially shelved that deal due to market conditions. They were initially eyeing as much as $10 billion from that offering. However, this will still likely be the largest listing in Hong Kong this year and implies a $57 billion market cap for the company, which operates uh, less than 200 stores, mainly in airports, cruise ships, city downtown areas. They do the duty-free stuff. So if you want to you know, you know, pick up a bottle of vodka on your flight back from wherever, that's, that's where you would do it. Multi, that's what you pick up on your way listing. back from China. Multi, I remember that stuff. Whoa. There you go. Um, <laughs> Long flight. <laughs> makes, always makes me think Mike Aditi, of course. Yeah. One of the worst IPOs of all time. Uh, only days later when we found out that they had run afoul of the Chinese regulators. Didi's still trading here. I got it at $2.92 for, yeah. the, uh, for the ADR. $2.92. Uh, good news is it's up from its 52-week low of a buck thirty-seven. Yeah, exactly. So. <laughs> and, and not a trivial market cap. I think it's like no, $14 billion No, it's still $14 billion. Yeah, so it just shows you how big a splash that that was really meant to make. Ride-hailing giant. Uh, at, the, uh, you know, at the IPO, absolutely. I wanted to just give an example of how the market has rushed back into the most cyclical uh, type stocks. United Rentals is always kind of on the whip end of sentiment about, uh, you know, obviously construction, but also just in general industrial uh, activity. It's up about a third of a percent today. But if you look at it on a year to date, it's up 40 plus percent since late June uh, and just gone vertical right there. There's a lot of stocks that look like that, that sort of went right into the, you know, into the abyss and bounced very hard. And now it's kind of a, all right, here's the challenge to figure out if something's really changed or we just actually had a violent shakeout uh, in the stock. But people are pointing out there has been a firm bid in industrials, broadly speaking, transports. And if that's just kind of mean reversion and saying, okay, the economy is going to muddle through or if it's a reacceleration, uh, obviously remains to be seen. Yeah, wow, what a move. There it is, yeah, 32% a month. All right, still to come, we're going to have an exclusive interview with Richmond Fed President Thomas Barkin. We'll talk inflation, of course, and the path ahead for interest rates. Before we head to break, let's give you a look at uh, the bond market this morning. The bond report, we'll take a look at how Treasuries are faring, of course. We've talked about you know, yields coming off, and that's been favorable to some banks that have made commitments previously in a higher or a lower, far lower yield environment than we raced higher. You can see we're still two-year over uh, 10, 
toll-free 194-2848. We'll be right back. Week's uh, top performers, well, you know, I mentioned Nielsen, of course, because they got that deal uh, done with Windicker, which appeared perhaps in jeopardy, or even the idea that Elliott wouldn't want to do it, given change in the economic environment since it signed it up. 28's the price, and see what that's meant. Devon Energy, we had the CEO on yesterday, of course, continues to be a very strong performer. We're at, back after this. Amazon rebounding a bit over the last three months, up over 30 percent, recouping some of the company's losses since the beginning of the year. Shares are still down double digits when you look back year to date, though. But is now the time to jump back in? Our next guest saying the worst is firmly behind the e-commerce giant. Joining us to discuss, Stiefel analyst Scott Devitt maintaining a buy rating on the stock, upping his price target to 200 after a strong quarter. Uh, so that implies, say, 30 percent upside from here. What do you think are the key drivers that you would say now's the time to buy Amazon? Uh, good morning, Leslie. I think the key drivers are, as you described, that the worst is behind. Much of it was the presentation of comparables as the company was coming out of the pandemic. So as you enter into 2023, you're going to have gross merchandise value on the retail business accelerating the revenue in aggregate of the business accelerating. AWS in 2023 should exceed $100 billion in revenue. And uh, maybe most importantly, your margins are in the process of bottoming right now and on a calendar basis should improve from 3% in 22 to over 5% in 23. So that tends to be the best time to own Amazon shares when margins are rising. And I think um, the stock has, has a good 30 to 40% more upside over the next 12 months. Does that require a, a pretty accommodative macro backdrop for that thesis to take place? Or is it kind of idiosyncratic regardless of what happens with inflation, regardless with what happens with rates um, and, and other factors here? Um, it would require a relatively normal uh, macroeconomic backdrop. So, um, you know, Amazon would not be immune to a material deterioration in, in economic trends. Um, but, uh, but from a base case standpoint, with neutral economic conditions, I think you can make those expectations that I described. And you have a stock that's now depressed because it's been um, being, being, being priced off of these most recent comps. And as that reverses, you get the continuation of the rally that's already begun. Scott, to what degree is this process uh, of Amazon uh, trying to rationalize some of the overinvestment and overhiring that they've talked about in the last quarter or so uh, that has to be done? There was a sense out there that uh, almost they were bearing the burden of a lot of the logistical costs that were going up and then uh, investing uh, kind of indiscriminately on top of that. So is that going to be a process we live with for a while? It's going to either hurt margins or sentiment toward the stock? Um, it could, but we're also coming out of that. You know, I would make the argument that, um, you know, counter to, I think, the, the, the current consensus view that Amazon didn't really do anything wrong during the pandemic. Costs increased, oil prices increased, the cost of labor increased, logistics costs have increased that were outside of their control. And then the things that were inside of the company's control, which was managing to a peak that uh, no one could have imagined when or at what level it would be, that they're now coming off of is just the natural kind of evolution of post-pandemic um, 
business. And, and Amazon, interestingly, during the pandemic, the headcount of the business doubled from 800,000 to 1.6. We've now come about 100,000 off of that peak. Um, but, um, but even more impressive, the fulfillment center footprint, the company added more fulfillment center space during the pandemic than it had in its entire uh, 25 year existence prior to that. So there's some normalization coming out and we're seeing that now, but that's also what ultimately as they grow into that contributes to margin expansion in coming years. Right, all right, well, Scott, thank you very much for joining us. Have a nice weekend. Thank you. Still to come, Citadel's Ken Griffin is making another big bet on real estate. Robert Frank is in Miami. Robert. Good morning, David. They are calling it the Citadel effect. Citadel's move to Miami causing a boost in prices in both the residential and the office market. We're going to take a look at the mansions, the apartment buildings, and the office towers that Citadel and Ken Griffin are buying and building here in Miami right after the break. You've been listening to the opening hour of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu.